statement of faith. I couldn't see a thing out there. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. And uh, you remember that today we said we're coming to the real climax of this first half of Mark, entering into the second half. Mark's divided into halves. First half telling us who Jesus is. Second half showing us what he's done, especially on the cross and in the resurrection. And uh, the first half, you remember, has uh, an introduction which tells us that Jesus is the Christ. And you look at the very first verse of the first chapter, the, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For the rest of this uh, first half of Mark's gospel, you never hear Jesus proclaimed as Christ again. But in the introduction, we're told that this is a gospel about uh, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then we saw there are three major sections, each of which begin with a calling of the disciples, followed by a rejection of Jesus Christ, either by the Pharisees or someone else. And then over and over again, you hear this refrain as Jesus displays his glory and casting out demons and stilling the storm and raising the dead. People will say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Or who is this? He even, he even calms the winds and the waves. Or he does everything well. He restores sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb. Causes the lame to walk. And so you hear this refrain, who is this, who is this, who is this? And then you hear Jesus saying several times to his, to his disciples, don't you understand, don't you understand, don't you understand? So Jesus is continually revealing himself for who he is. And he is continuing to challenge his people about whether they understand who he is, and they continue not to get it. At the end of our last study, you remember, he basically just leaves the Pharisees and the Herodians in the dust. And he he just walks away from them in verse 13 of chapter 8. Then he left them. He just left them. And he says to them, no sign will be given to, to you to this sinful and adulterous generation. Uh, basically, he, he's withdrawing himself, which is an awesome thing. That is really, really awesome and terrifying. But he, he eventually comes to the end with those who have set themselves against him, and he won't see them really again until Jerusalem, uh, when, of course, they, they do him in. But in the end, of course, he does in all the evil powers. But then you remember with the disciples... He says, remember we looked at verse 17, he's saying, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Uh, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? You've got eyes and ears, but you can't see or hear. What is wrong with you? But then we notice that when he speaks to them in verse 21, he uses a very important word, upo. Do you yet or still not understand. So he doesn't just leave them. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't say, no more sign for you. He says, you don't yet get it. Here are these knuckleheads. I've been with him for probably 18 months. Seen all kinds of miraculous things. Seen all kinds of signs from heaven. All kinds of wonderful teachings. And they don't, they don't know who he is. And he's still hanging out with them. And gentlemen, that's just an amazing thing about Jesus for his people. He, he, he'll hang with you. And some of you know that because he's hung with you through some pretty rough times. And uh, you know how patient he is. And here you get a picture. I hear some amens in this group. This, this is really amen Bible study. When, when, I, when, when, we, when we all just admit there were a bunch of lousers, we get a lot of amens in this room, yeah. So now let's look 
And see what happens after that. He's saying, you still, you yet don't understand. He's still persevering with them. Has more to show them yet. More patience yet. Well, what comes out of all of it? This is the way it works with us finally. You know, we do get it. Amazing thing. It takes eight chapters, but we get it. Now, let's look at verses 22. And what we're going to see are really sort of four important moments here uh, in Jesus' relationship with the disciples that give us four things you've got to know if you're really going to know Jesus Christ. All right? If you're going to know him for the first time, if there's some of you here who really haven't yet uh, decided to follow Christ, here I think you'll get the four basic ingredients you need to know uh, to know Christ. If you've been following him for 50 years, uh, you'll still get the four ingredients that you need to know to deepen your relationship with him today. And they're right here in the climax of this passage because what what happens here at Peter's confession is that it rounds out and summarizes all that's come before and now we're going to see it ushers us in to this new section which will eventually take us to Jerusalem and to the cross and the empty grave. All right, let's pick up with 22 and we'll go through 9-1. They came to Bethsaida and that's a, a village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. This is way on up north <coughs> near the, uh, near the uh, ah, Mount Hermon uh, up, in, up in the area of Lebanon. So they go to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Well, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke, spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, 
I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Amen. Well, let's notice, first of all, this major teaching in verses 22 through 26, which is to know Jesus requires miraculous healing. To know Jesus requires miraculous healing. (laughs) I guess it should be obvious by now that Jesus can stand on his head, turn a backflip, leap buildings with a single bound, and you'll say, hmm, let me see, this could be a special teacher here. Uh, you know, so we can look at him all we want. The Pharisees could listen to him all they want. They could have all the signs from heaven, and then they're asking him, please give us a sign from heaven. I mean, it's idiocy. There's something wrong with us on the inside. That's what you've got to deal with, that Jesus reveals himself to us. The Bible is the word of God. And for any conscience that's really thinking clearly, looks at the evidence for the resurrection, listens to the Bible, you know good and well that this is a revelation of the Word of God. Anyone who looks at creation knows good and well that can't happen by accident through some mindless uh, evolutionary process. It obviously has a mind behind it, intentionality behind it, miraculous supernatural power behind it to take it from one level of development to the next level of development with no way that it could progressively do that because uh, of all the things that we've studied when we were in Genesis. So the things are obvious to a reasonable person. The problem is you're not reasonable. Your mind is working. You You can do logical syllogisms and all the rest. But when it comes to something that might lead to a conclusion that you don't find beautiful, that you don't find good, then you will not accept it as truth even though it's absolutely compelling intellectually. That's the problem with sin. It's called the noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic effects of sin. That is the intellectual effects of sin. It affects your brain. Uh, it affects your mind, the way that you think, what, you're, what conclusions you're willing to draw. So you and I do not draw conclusions when we know that we don't like the conclusion. You know it. You argue with your wife. You know she's right. You're going, to, you're going to use your powers of reason to argue with her and just, you know, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, so you can win the argument. And you know she's right. Why? Because you don't want her to be right. So you just keep arguing. We do that. We do it with our children, too, as a matter of fact. Sometimes they're right. But we don't want them to show us up. Then on and on it goes. And it's the same with the Lord. We don't want Him to be the Lord. We don't want to be His subjects. And we don't want to have to deal with our sin. So we rationalize. And here what we're shown in this miracle is that it takes a a miracle to open our eyes to see. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, and if you're following him, you have been the objects of this kind of miraculous care. That's how you got here. As uh, one once uh, wrote, you know, when you walk by and you see a turtle on a fence post, there's one thing you know about it. It didn't get there by itself. And that's what a Christian is, a turtle on a fence post. Somebody put you there. It's obvious. And here's the story that tells us this. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know it because if you look at the pattern that we've been looking at now for the third week, you see this, this parallel uh, with 631 through 737 and 81 through 830. And you'll see that there's a healing right before a confession of faith. The other reason that we know this, not just from the parallel that's in Mark, but when you compare the story of Peter's high confession with the story in Matthew 16, you'll notice uh, several things left out of Mark. Of course, we know Mark is man's gospel. It's right to the line, you know, bottom line, get to the point, all this. Uh, immediately, 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 a lot of action. 
But there's a literary reason why Mark leaves out some things that, that Matthew recorded for us. Remember after Peter made his high confession in Matthew, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say to him? Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has made this known to you. So in Matthew, it's a teaching that Jesus gives that Mark just left out. And Jesus tells Peter after that confession, Peter, you didn't work this up from within yourself. The reason is because of the noetic effects of sin, you wouldn't have even have been able to work it up. You wouldn't have been able to come to the obvious conclusions that are before you. Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This is not religion from the bottom up. This is revelation from the top down. And when you come to Jesus Christ, yeah, you have people who help you. You read the Bible. You can read books. You can think it through. But eventually, when you come to see the truth, it's top down. Heaven has opened up and God by His Spirit has given you life. It's the Spirit. It's the Father who sends the Spirit who gives you life and gives you illumination, turns the light on so you can see. So Matthew made that clear by recording the response of Jesus to Peter. Mark leaves it out because he's got the story right here. He doesn't need it, so to speak, to make his point. Mark's making his point through a healing. And here you have it. Now we'll notice uh, that these healings in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 are fulfilling the promises of God when he brings the final age that he will restore sight to the blind. He will restore speech to the dumb. He will restore, restore hearing to the deaf. So Mark is showing us how Jesus is fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament. I mean, if it ever were obvious to anybody, Pharisees or disciples, they ought to look and see that all the promises of the Old Testament about the final day are coming true through the life of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to notice, first of all, is that we cannot do this by our own natural powers. You'll see in verse 22 this picture of helplessness. They brought a blind man, and it was, it was said by the rabbis that people, you know, God will do miracles through, through people. And, you know, rabbis and certain other ones who were in, in the healing arts, they could heal certain things, but they, it was legendary. Nobody can heal a blind man. Nobody can heal a blind man. And here you have the picture of human helpless, helplessness here. And sometimes in your lives, you get to that point where you actually see how helpless humanity is. Sometimes in a relationship or sometimes in your business or sometimes in your physical health or sometimes if you lose your mother and you just realize there's nothing you can do about that. You're completely helpless. You can't defeat your cancer. You can put some chemotherapy on it, but eventually something's going to get you. And you have these... Moments these, that dawn upon you where you realize how helpless you are. Well, what those moments are for is to teach us that we were always helpless and we acted for so long as though we weren't. And here we have in verse 22 a clear picture of why you need a miracle because you are helpless on your own. Yeah, you have a good mind. You have a high IQ. But that's not going to lead you to Jesus Christ. You're helpless without, without His healing power. Secondly, look how personally Jesus deals with this man and this is one of the unique things uh, about this healing. He just takes him by the hand. Here he takes a blind man, takes him by the hand, leads him out of the village. And scholars kind of debate about what all this means, and I don't think anybody really knows. But you can imagine. Here's a man who can't see anything. He just hears a lot of noise in the crowd, and he can feel the hustle and bustle and getting bumped. And here Jesus is taking him personally by the hand, leading him out of the village, away from the noise, away from the matting crowd, so Jesus can develop a personal relationship with this guy. 
And when he heals you, it's not impersonal. It's not a force that heals you. It's someone who's taking you by the hand, wanting to build a personal relationship with you, wanting you to know where this healing came from. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't a force. It wasn't some mystical experience. It was personally Jesus Christ taking you by the hand and helping you. And he makes that clear with this guy. It's just a marvelous, uh, it's a marvelous record here that Mark gives us of how Jesus uh, did this in establishing a personal relationship with a blind man. And then thirdly, you'll notice in verses 23 through 25 that the healing is miraculous and progressive. And, of course, this is the only instance we have in the New Testament of Jesus uh, having to work twice to get a miracle done. <laughs> and you think, you know, what's wrong? You, to, you know, it's like taking your car to the mechanic, you know. You get it back, it still sputters, and you have to take it back for another little touch. And you think, well, Jesus, the same way, you know. Uh, and you wonder, what is this all about? Well, here you have it. Uh, the miracle is for the purpose of showing us that we need divine help in order to, to make a true confession, in order for us really to know who he is, in order for us to be his followers. We have to be the objects of his miraculous work. It's also here to show you that he works progressively in your life. It's not just one miracle zap and it's done and he's all through with you. He takes you by the hand, zaps you, and you won't see him again. He's in your, in your face and holding your hand every day of your life. He's constantly developing you. And that's what this is all about. And we'll see how that plays out in just a moment with Peter's confession. But after the first touch, you can see he, he does see people, which means that this man was not born blind like the man in John 9 because when his eyes were open, he kind of knew what people should look like and he kind of knew what trees should look like. So he, he had some uh, faint knowledge of what objects were to look like. He's not like a man who's never had his sight, but he sees people and they look like trees walking around. <laughs> well, some of you are the same way if you took your glasses off. <laughs> you, know, you, can't quite, you can't make out anybody who they are. You know, um, It gets worse and worse every year. So this guy was just like having, having sight, but really bad sight. And, then, and that was after Jesus spit in his eyes. You know, that's some kind of ministry. Have a spitting ministry. You know, in the name of Jesus. Now, I've never seen anybody do that. Yeah, I've seen people lay hands on on TV, you know, and heal them, knock them over and everything. I've never seen anybody spit in their eye. But uh, I guess that's coming next. But here Jesus spits in the man's eyes. I don't, don't ask me why except to say Jesus just takes, it's very, it's very personal. You've got to admit that. Uh, and Jesus is just putting his substance on that man's body and puts his hands on him. And then he asks him, do you see anything? And then he says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. And then once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. And then you have this progressive statement here. The eyes are opened. The sight was restored. And he sees everything. And this word clearly literally means as from afar off. In other words, 20-20 vision. Sees clearly. Can see way in the distance. See like a child. Wow. Sees better than I do. And it's absolutely amazing. This man has now being completely healed, but it's progressive. Jesus touches once and you see something. He touches again and you see more clearly. Haven't you experienced this? If you've been walking with Jesus Christ, didn't he touch you once the first time and you went from darkness and blindness to seeing something and you knew it was beautiful, you could see some colors and you were beginning to make sense out of this world and then he touches you again and it starts to become clearer and clearer 
Isn't, that, isn't it that way when you read the Bible? First time you read it, you say, man, this is an amazing story. I never really even thought about it, and I never thought about how it applied today. And then the more you study it year after year, that Bible starts to get not only more compact, but more interrelated. You begin to see the interconnections and the beauty of Old Testament, New Testament, the way they're related to each other and how it all points to Jesus Christ. And you see the promise and fulfillment in the Scriptures, and you see the, the consistency in the Scriptures and the, the, the glory of it in the end and how we started off in a garden, end up in a city, and how God takes us from some, something that was good to something that's even better in the end. And the whole thing begins to come together and you, you just start to get more and more excited. Well, that takes years because Jesus continues to touch you and open your eyes. And you'll notice uh, here on our Sunday morning worship, before we even read the text from which I preach in the morning, we pray a prayer for illumination. Lord, turn the lights on. We can read this Bible and talk about it all day long, but if you don't turn the lights on, we're not going to see. It's progressive illumination. Lord, turn on the lights. So revelation is God making things known from heaven objectively to us. Illumination is turning the interior lights on so you can see. So He can do all He, he will out here, but if He doesn't turn the lights on, it doesn't affect you internally. You, don't know, you know nothing about it. So you have to have revelation and illumination, both. So that's exactly what's going on here, and it's progressive. So every year you grow, your illumination, you may say, my eyes are getting worse. Well, the eyes of your heart are getting better. You're seeing more and more as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice that it's progressive. Don't expect to get it all with your first touch, first time you ever became a Christian. And some of you have told me an amen. You know, I've grown up at the church. And I just started to learn some things. I, somehow I missed it in Sunday school. Well, hello. Jesus is just still holding your hand, taking you outside the village. And he touched you once, touching you again. He's so good. He really is. Even if you didn't get it enough, even to know if you were saved in the first touch. It was so blurry. You weren't even sure that you were seeing. It was so blurry. Now you see. And you know you see. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Touch after touch after touch. Then notice... Fourthly, in verse 26, Jesus is not finished with us yet. He says, don't go into the village. Now, why do I say Jesus is not finished with us yet? Here's what we want to notice, and we'll, we'll get in a moment with the disciples as well. He's not ready for this man to be a public evangelist. Now, you remember he told the demoniac to go back to his family and tell, him, tell his family about the mercy God had had on him. But this man, he says, don't even go back into the village. And there's a reason for this, and it's parallel to the story with the disciples. We'll see that, and let's turn to that. In verses 27 through 30, now we go to the disciples. And here's what we're going to learn. That to know Jesus requires miraculous healing, but to know Jesus requires believing that He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. You can't know Him without knowing and professing and claiming that. And of course, when you do, that has tremendous implications for your life. For if He is the Messiah, He is the one to be followed. He is the fulfillment of everything promised by God ages past in the Old Testament. He is the Lord. He is the boss. He's the master. He's the king. That's what Messiah really is. It's anointed one. And anointed in the Old Testament, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed. So He's your prophet. He's the source of all truth. He's the priest, he's the way, the one who makes the way clear to heaven for you, and he's the king, he's the one who rules over you. So when you say, you're the Messiah, you're my source of truth, you're my way to heaven, you're my king. It's all wrapped up in that one word. That's the reason you don't want to say it cheaply. 
It's the reason Peter didn't say it until now. He didn't get it. And he knew there were massive implications for his own life. There are for you too. But you can't know Jesus Christ unless you know him as he is. And he is Messiah and Lord. That's the only way you could possibly know him. You can dream up that he's some nice Buddha, some nice teacher, some prophet. You could dream up that he's a nice little preacher who's harmless. You can dream up that he's a nice mystic or sage or some political revolutionary. But you wouldn't know him because that's not who he was. You have to know him as he is. And here, after eight chapters, finally, the disciples get him as he is. And that's what we must have too. Now, once again, notice the parallels with the miraculous story and the story of the disciples. You have, you know, the circumstances. And let's, we'll, we'll look at those in just a moment. Uh, the circumstances in Bethsaida and in Caesarea Philippi. Both, in both cases, the location is mentioned and they're important, as we'll see in just a moment. Then you get partial sight. The partial sight in this story is when he asks them what other people are saying. They say, well, you're a prophet. You know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Well, that's partial sight. It's like seeing people as trees walking around. Jesus was a prophet. Great. Good. You got it. That's not, that's not the end of the matter. That's a start. That's a first touch. Then they get sight. Uh, in uh, verse 29, uh, Jesus says to him, Who do you say I am? And he, he says, You are the Christ. There is sight. Okay? There's the second touch, if you will. And then the command to be silent that we'll examine in just a moment. Well, let's look first of all at this location and its meaning. And here's the meaning. Jesus Christ is unique among all the gods. Now, why do we say that? Why would we make a statement like that when all we're told is that he went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi? Here's why. Caesarea Philippi is way up north. It's definitely considered in the land of of the Gentiles. Uh, it is a city named after Caesar. Uh, Herod Philip. Philip was the son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he was given that city. And there was a temple to Caesar there that uh, Herod the Great built to Caesar Augustus. So it was a city of Caesar and it was the city given to Philip, Caesarea Philippi. In that city... Before the temple to Caesar Augustus was built, there it was a place where the Greek god Pan, P-A-N, was worshipped. Pan in Greek means all. So it was the god of all. And there in, in Caesarea Philippi, there was a little pantheon, you know, small time, of many gods to be worshipped. It was a worshipping center for greco Roman worship. Now think with me just a minute. Why did Jesus take the disciples out of the Sea of Galilee area, a Jewish area, and take them up to a place where all the powers and deities of the world were being worshipped? Basically, Mark's making this point. Matthew does the same thing. The point is, when you make your profession of Jesus, you make your profession with all the options right in front of you and their multitudinous. There are many gods being offered you. The God of wealth, the God of sex, the God of prestige and power, uh, the gods of the Romans, the gods of Hinduism, uh, the God of Judaism, the God of Islam. They're all offered before you. And when you make your profession 
It is as though Jesus takes you to all the books on religion. Read them all if you want to. When you make your choice to Him, you're making your choice in view of all the options. And when you say yes to Him, you're saying no to all of them, including the worship of Caesar, which could get your head chopped off. So he takes them to, the, to a religious marketplace to make their confession. Isn't that really fascinating? So we don't cloister people. We don't get them out in the woods and say, now this is where you want to stay in order to have your Christian life have integrity. Just stay out here in the woods. Don't mix it up with anybody. Don't get involved with those secular people. No, you go right down the marketplace, and there's where you make your choice. So Jesus is taking them amidst all the gods. And when you say that Jesus is Messiah, you're saying everybody else is not It is not both and, it is either or. And mostly the Eastern religions will tell us it's both and until you tell them it's either or and then it's either or. You either come both and with us or you go your your way. (laughs) They can't have both and, really. So everybody actually is either or, but the East prefers to think they're both and. And Jesus is making it clear it's either or. So that's the first thing that He is unique among all the gods. Jesus' dignity is first recognized in a place where Caesar was honored as Lord. Secondly, verse 27, 28, you see He is a prophet. So certainly, that's the first touch. You see, this man speaks truth. And uh, most people in the world would see that. They, a lot of people in the world get the first touch that he is a prophet. But the, the second touch is he is the Messiah. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. In spite of all the miracles in the first eight chapters, between chapter 1, verse 1, and this verse, there's no mention of Jesus as Messiah. Because he is associated with sinners... Uh, and he broke the Sabbath, the only paradigm the clergy had to work with was the paradigm of the demonic. Because they, in their fallenness, they had already decided that someone who really was the Christ couldn't break their their rules of the Sabbath and uh, couldn't be involved with the demonic as he was and couldn't associate with sinners and break all their rules. So the only categories they had left were the demonic. That's the reason that they they said he was a prince of Beelzebub. But here we clearly see that Peter breaks through and sees that he is the Christ. And gentlemen, that's that's where you've got to come. You need the second touch to see that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the Lord and there is none other. And therefore, we come completely under his lordship. We're submitted to him because we trust him. We trust his benevolence. That when we come under his lordship, he's going to be good to us. We don't come under his lordship, you know, thinking he's going to slay us. We come under his lordship knowing he's going to be good to us. Here it is. You are the Christ. Now, notice Jesus' response. Jesus, verse 30, warns them not to tell anybody about him. And this is because Jesus is not finished with us yet either. Now, doesn't it seem strange that we come to the climax of of chapters 1 through 8, they haven't known who he was. Finally, they get the second touch. They make their profession of faith. Now they've got it. Aren't they ready to go out and be evangelists? Aren't they ready to be sent out? They've got it. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Lord. 
Let's send them out. We're ready for the missions trips and all the rest. And Jesus warns them not to tell anybody. (laughs) Uh, Why? Well, because of what we see next. If they had gone out, they would have left out something very important, in fact, essential, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There are many debates about the messianic secret. This is the messianic secret when Jesus tells them not to tell anyone, and he tells them over and over again in in Mark 1 through 8. And I mentioned to you some months ago, we talk about it. Here's the time. Lots of speculation about why the messianic secret. Well, some say because Jesus didn't want to be enthroned as king, and we have that in John's gospel that he withdrew because they would make him king. He didn't want to be king in that way. Some wanted him to be a Messiah the way they thought a Messiah would work. That is a political Messiah who would take over and who would instigate a political and military revolution, an insurgency, a terrorist sort of band. And Jesus wasn't going to do that. Some say he had the messianic secret because if they went proclaiming him loudly, it would have stirred up the authorities and he wouldn't have ended up on the cross sooner than he wanted to. Or he would have died outside of Jerusalem and he wanted to die in Jerusalem, a sacrificial death for you and me. All those things are probably true. But I think the essence of the matter is it was a messianic secret. He didn't want people to tell about him because they didn't have the whole gospel. It's not the whole gospel if you just know who he is. You have to know what his work is. You have to know Christ and him crucified. Paul said when when he spoke to the Corinthians, I chose to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you have to have the crucified Jesus before you really have Jesus. So you may even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You may even believe he was the Son of God. But if you leave the cross out, you don't have the full gospel. And I tell you what, there are a lot of churches, it seems to me, that leave the cross out. They're trying to appeal to people through marketing techniques and a clean nursery and nice parking spaces and fancy buildings. We have a pretty good one here ourselves, don't we? doing all kinds of marketing campaigns, trying to get people to tell Jesus, Jesus loves you, He'll help you, He'll do this, He'll do that. Snap your fingers and He'll come and deliver your breakfast in bed, I guess. I don't know. Jesus will do anything you want. They left the cross out. And when people don't proclaim the cross, they are not proclaiming the Jesus Christ that saves people in the Scriptures. And that's the reason Jesus said, don't go out there and preach. You don't have it yet. If you don't have Jesus and the cross. And if you don't know what the cross did what it accomplished, and how you can appropriate it. You're not ready to proclaim Christ to the world. So we all need to be very careful that when we open our mouths, we know who we're talking about and we know what we're talking about. And until then, maybe the best thing is to sing in a lower key. Maybe you can talk to your family about what... You should talk to your family about what Jesus has done for you. You can talk to your neighbor about what Jesus has done for you. But be very careful that you don't make any loud proclamations about this is what... Christ is when you don't have the cross. And here, look at the teaching here. He then began to teach them. Isn't it interesting? He began. He began when they understood who it was that died on this cross. Because you don't also, you don't understand the cross until you understand who it was that died on the cross. It wasn't just a great teacher. It wasn't a loving man. This was the Messiah. This was the King David's royal son that died on the cross. He began to teach them now that they had the understanding of who he was. 
18 months before he popped the question as to who he was. We're wanting to lead people to Christ in about 15 minutes. Sometimes it happens. But more often it happens over 18 months when people begin to shift their paradigms and wrestle with this message and then understand, my stars, this is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he died on a cross, a propitiatory sacrifice for me. So you'll see he began to teach them about now something about his work, his cross. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, this Son of Man is used 14 times in Mark, and this Son of Man is going to suffer He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. He's going to be rejected by all the teachers. He taught them that he was going to be rejected by the others who teach, the religious teachers, and that he must be killed and then after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now, before now, Jesus has been speaking in parables. Why? So that we would understand and so the Pharisees wouldn't. It was an act of judgment to the Pharisees that he would speak the truth in parables and they'd, they wouldn't get it at all because they'd see, but they, they had eyes, but they didn't see. They'd have ears that they didn't hear. They have minds, but they don't understand. The parables were an act of judgment, but the parables also were, were a way of teaching us and bringing us along so that we can begin to see in picture form what the kingdom is about and who Jesus is. Now he teaches plainly using straight language, non-pictorial language, conceptual language. So here it is. I'm giving it to you straight. He says, now you know who I am. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. And here's what it's about. I'm going to be killed. It's going to be vicious. It's going to be violent. And I'm going to be rejected by everybody who ought to know better. Now, to say the least, this did not fit the disciples' paradigm of what a Messiah was. The Jewish idea of Messiah was one of conquest, victory, popularity. It was the one who was going to change the world, not the idea of some guy being hung naked on a tree. That did not fit the paradigm of Messiah. You may as well talk about fried ice as to talk about a crucified Messiah. Makes no sense. And that's the reason that we read here that we don't get this. Peter took him aside and began to teach him himself. And, you know, we're taught in the Scriptures by Paul. He tells Timothy that the Scriptures are given us to teach and correct and rebuke, train. So Peter was just being a good Christian. He just rebukes and tells Jesus he's got it wrong. He took him aside. Jesus, I don't want to embarrass you in front of everybody. Peter had really good manners when he worked on it. Jesus, excuse me just a minute. Thank you, Peter. Gosh, what an idiot. His name is Sandy Wilson. And uh, Peter rebukes him and says, No, Lord. Well, as they say in the old revivalistic movement, you can say no and you can say Lord, but you can't say no, Lord. But Peter did it. No, Lord. Rebuked him. You can't do this. Why? It just doesn't fit. We don't get it. The cross doesn't make sense to the first one the, the first time you're hearing it, when you realize who Jesus is as prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus tells them this over and over again. You'll see in chapter 9 he does it. In chapter 10 he does it. And in both cases, we don't get it. And here's why. Jesus then rebukes him. 
He looks at all the disciples. <laughs> Peter took him aside. And Jesus says, Peter, come back. <laughs> and he rebukes Peter in their presence because they were all thinking the same thing. Peter was just the one willing to say it. And look what Jesus shows us, that our natural thinking about the cross is demonically self-centered. That's our natural thinking. And here's the natural thinking. Jesus says, look, look at the language. He rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. The word Satan means adversary. So perhaps he could be saying to Peter, Get behind me, Peter. But I don't think he is. I think he's saying, you know, as he said in Matthew 16, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. And now he's saying, Peter, you're an instrument of Satan. <laughs> didn't take long, did it, boys? <laughs> You know, these, you have these fine moments. You know, you give these fine Sunday school lessons, the next minute you're a, you're a weapon of Satan. And I've heard some say that actually it was grace here that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, and did not say, get behind me, Peter. So he loves Peter, keeps Peter there, but he's rebuking Satan, speaking through Peter. And here's the satanic message, that Jesus should be the Christ without the cross. That's satanic. And that's the reason that I say that so many of us in our Christian communities, in our Christian messages, are really satanic messages that you could actually know Jesus Christ without knowing his cross and understanding it and embracing it. You can't. Just as you cannot know the Father except through the Son. Jesus teaches that. You may know some image of a God that you've created, and it will come to you through the world religions and seeing creation in this world. You can put a few things together and create an image of a God that you could, some, in some way, you could say, I know him. Well, you just know you're the figment of your own imagination. But if you want to really know the God who is, the only way you can know him, Jesus said, is through Jesus Christ. And the only way you can know Jesus Christ is to know his cross. What is the cross? Well, the cross is this. It is Jesus Christ's sacrificial work on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for your sin and to make a way open for you into heaven itself. He had to die for you, not only because He loves you and cherishes you, but because you're that bad. Sometimes, and it's, you can say it's true, you, know, you want to know how much Jesus loves you, just look at the cross he loves you so much that if you were the only one in the world we hear, he would have come and done it for you. And that's very affirming, isn't it, to know that we're that valuable in the eyes of God. But here's another way of looking at it. You are so bad that if you're the only person in the world, Jesus Christ still would have had to die on the cross for your sins. That's how bad your sins are, that the very Son of God had to come from heaven and take on flesh, living a perfect life, and die a violent death. That is what had to be redeemed in you, was the wickedness in your heart. That's the reason people reject the cross. Because we don't want to face the sin and the misery that's propagated by our own hearts. But that's exactly why he had to come. The cross accomplished three things, fundamentally, objectively. First of all, the cross reveals God's character. All the great redemptive acts in the scriptures are primarily for the purpose of revealing God's character. The Ten Commandments give us guidance along the way. They lead us to Jesus Christ. They do a lot of good things, but the fundamental thing the Ten Commandments does reveals God's righteousness, His character, His holiness. The dividing of the Red Sea was a great redemptive act for all of Israel, but it fundamentally revealed the power of God and His love for His people. It's about God. It's really not ultimately ending on us. It ends on Him. 
So when you come to the greatest redemptive act of all of them, the cross is primarily to reveal his character. What about his character? Well, first of all, I just said it, his righteousness. He is so righteous that when sin threatens to come into his presence, he must kill it completely. He is that righteous. He is an awesome burning fire. And that's the reason that it's so comforting to have had Jesus Christ die for me because I will not face the wrath of God in his righteousness. He will not scorch me. He'll not nail me. He already nailed his son. But it reveals his righteousness. This, if you want to know what he thinks about sin, look at the cross. That's what he thinks about sin. It reveals his love. What, who, can, who can fathom the grace and love of one who would send his precious one and only perfect son to die for a miserable sinner like me? I'm sorry. I don't have categories for that. All I can do is say amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's all I can do. I can't understand that. I don't act like that. I'm trying to learn. But that's out of my range of understanding. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's a, you know, we're all slack-jawed trying to understand the love of God that's revealed at Calvary. What about His faithfulness? He said He was going to save His people. He said He'd go to any lengths to do it. He said He'd never break His covenant. Do you want to know how faithful He is? You look at the cross and you'll see how faithful He is. He will not break His promise to you. He'll put His own Son on the cross before He'll break a promise to you. So all these attributes of God come out in brilliant living color at the cross. So the first thing about the cross, it reveals the character of God. Second thing about the cross, it redeems His people. There's no way for us to get to heaven from here without the cross. You go through the cross. This is the reason he said, I chose to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified because this is the way for people to be saved. They receive Jesus Christ as Christ and as Lord and they receive his cross and his cross alone for their salvation. The merit that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is the only merit you have. It's the only thing that could possibly justify you is what He did for you in your place. You put your trust in what He did, not what you're going to do tomorrow, not the prayers you're going to pray, not the church attendance, not the tithes you're going to give, not the mission work you're going to do. You put your trust completely in what He did for you and that alone. That's what the cross means. It's a complete surrender of your righteousness and your performance. You're trusting His performance. And it saves God's people. So that's the second thing about the cross. And the third thing is this. The cross, and these are all R's so we can remember it, routes God's enemies. So it reveals God's character, redeems God's people, routes God's enemies. We're told by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 that he put up the, public, uh, he put up the powers and authorities up to public spectacle, triumphing over them by the cross. So the king did triumph, but not in the way that Peter thought. Not with swords loud clashing and stir of rolling drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, his kingdom comes. He comes with power and defeats the enemy on that cross. That's the irony of the cross. So he destroys the evil powers. And that's the reason the devil is so upset. That's the reason that he's exercising such rage because, as the apostles teach us, he knows his time is short. He's on a chain, and it's a short chain, and it's going to be over soon. So that's the reason you get such raging evil. It's this last burp of this roaring lion because he knows he's been conquered by the very cross that he perpetrated. So you have our natural thinking, but then you have our spiritual thinking when we come to understand the cross. Now, lastly, if we want to know Christ, 
we have to be the object of a miraculous power to understand. We have to know that he is the Christ, and we have to believe in his cross. But fourthly, in verses 34 following, you see, to know Jesus requires taking up our own cross. Now, here's where the real problem is. This is part of the resistance. If I'm following a political leader who's going to turn things around and he ends up dying in battle, I'm probably going to too. I don't want to think of my king as dying. I want to think of him as reigning. And then when he goes into the city and takes it over, hey, I'll be the prime minister. I'll be a, you know, that's what John and James were angling for. Their mother wanted them to be the prime minister and the, in the cabinet and all this because Jesus was going to come conquer and take over and he's going to set up his cabinet. I want to be on the cabinet. Hey, I'm one of the 12 disciples. I guess I'll be one of the, one of the 12 cabinet members. Let's see, will it be state, defense, you know, agriculture? What do I want? That's what everybody's thinking. But when your president gets shot, you know, you're afraid you're going to get shot too. And that's the built-in resistance to boasting about Jesus Christ being a crucified Savior. We don't want to face our own sin that made it necessary, nor do we want to face the fact that we're going to follow in His steps. But that's exactly what Jesus teaches them. He says, He then called the entire crowd, verse 34, and He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. There are two crosses. There's the cross of Jesus Christ and there's your cross. And Jesus has planned for His cross to be proclaimed to a world that needs the cross through people who take up their own cross. Because the message of His cross only makes sense to this world when they see a person, a man, who has taken up his own cross, who believes and loves in Jesus sufficiently that he not only believes that Jesus did it, but he walks in His steps. Now what is this cross? This cross is clearly your death. Your cross is not your mother-in-law or your daughter-in-law or your boss or that terrible car you have to drive that's a lemon or your leaky faucets. That's not your cross in life. Your cross is your death because you're following Jesus. That's your cross. You take it up. Take it up. Just like a criminal had to take up the crossbar and carry it to the place of crucifixion. And people were being crucified all over the place in Jesus' day. He wasn't the only one. There were thousands of them. And everybody knew what a cross was. It was wicked. It was vicious. It was violent. It was ugly. It was grotesque. And Jesus said, go do it. And then come follow me. So if you understand my cross, he's saying, you will take up your own cross and follow me. And otherwise, you cannot follow me. Because here I go. So if you want to look like this, come on. If you want to look like this, you got the wrong religion. If you want to look like this, come on. Take up your cross and come follow me. So, there are two crosses. Secondly, you can't have it both ways. He says in verse 35 through 38, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. And don't we see that? Everybody's trying to save their lives. Get a little bit more exercise, a little bit more brand. You know, a few more trips and relaxation, get your schedule right. Go have the wrinkles smoothed out, a little Botox. Uh, get your veins cleared out, pumped out every once in a while. Just grab for life. And Jesus is saying, if that's your definition of saving your life, you're going to lose it. Because Glenn Crosby, they're going to lose it at the end? They're going to lose it, aren't they? Even with good heart surgery, they're going to lose it, aren't they? Yes, sir. You're going to lose it. 
But if you take up your cross, which is to lose your life now, go ahead and lose it. Give up. Give it over. You're going to win it. You're going to get it back more than you ever dreamed. But you can't have it both ways. You can't be trying to save your life in this life. And I'm not saying have bad health and get fat like me. My, I went to my doctor for my annual checkup finally after three years. And uh, <clears throat> he was checking his record and he said, well, you've got to have this kind of procedure and this kind of procedure because I'm 55. And I said, now I remember why I avoided you for three years. And uh, he said, okay, go get on the scales. And I went, oh, gosh. I said, can I take my shoes off? Yeah, okay. Right. So I took my shoes off, got on the scales. And he said, well, good. And Sanders, he said, you lost one pound. Great. Uh, he said, I told you to lose 25. Okay, let's see, 75 years and you'll have it down. That's fine, good. So I'm not saying do what I do on that. I'm not saying be bad with your health. I'm just saying it's not going to save you. You're going to lose in the end. But you can't have it both ways. And if you're ashamed of him now, he'll be ashamed of you later. It's just real simple. If you boast of him now, he'll boast of you later. Paul says, I, bo- I, mean, I never boast about anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You boast of him now, he'll boast of you later. It's just that simple. Thirdly, life comes through crucifixion. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Well, you can't save it now. But let me tell you what, you can't lose it either. If you, if you take up your cross, you cannot lose your life. It feels like you're losing it, but you're not. You're going to get it back. You're going to be crowned with him in everlasting glory. And lastly, the time has come. He says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. What does he mean by this? That? When the kingdom of God comes with power and raises that man after three days in the tomb, raises him right out of the grave. And he's alive. He has a resurrected body. And, and 50 days later, 40 days later, he's ascends to the right hand of the Father. Ten days after that, the Holy Spirit comes, wham, hits the church and baptizes her with power. The kingdom of God has come. We're living in the age, age between the ages. We've got the old age and the new age. where It's crossing over us and intersecting. But the age has dawned upon us, and some there didn't taste death before they saw it. They saw it in just a few months, as a matter of fact. Well, this is the story. This is how you know Jesus Christ. By miracle, God's miraculous work in your heart, knowing who He is. He is who He says He is. He's Christ the Lord. And thirdly, you know Him by knowing Him through His cross work, not any other way. And fourthly, you know Him and only know Him if you take up your own cross and follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this climax to Mark's gospel and pray that we may live it out now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.